Hello and welcome to another episode of Straight Talking English. We are powering our way through the Frankenstein season. My name is Catherine. As ever, I am your host. I am on Twitter, str 8 English. I am on the internet. As you can tell, that's probably how you're listening to this. StraightTalkingEnglish.co.uk forward slash books. You can buy the book that goes along with this series. It's called Frankenstein, the full context. Forward slash support the project. You can support the project. Wing me a little donation if you like what I am doing. That name again is Catherine. And the name we are focusing on today is Mr. Victor Frankenstein. He is the protagonist. He is maybe the antagonist. We don't know. He's just kind of awful. I have no sympathy or love for Victor, as you will tell by my increasingly scathing tones. But like everything else in this book, he is chock full of context. The first way we can see Victor is if we look at the subtitle of the whole of Frankenstein. That subtitle is The Modern Prometheus. So, Yeah, Frankenstein is named after him. Frankenstein is clearly this modern update of the figure of Prometheus. Alright, if you don't know the story, now is your time to sit back, relax and enjoy the story of Prometheus. This is taken from a TED talk. It's a little bit long, but we'll have a chat about what Prometheus means right after this. Before the creation of humanity, the Greek gods won a great battle against a race of giants called the Titans. Most Titans were destroyed or driven to the eternal hell of Tartarus. But the Titan Prometheus, whose name means foresight, persuaded his brother Epimetheus to fight with him on the side of the gods. As thanks, Zeus entrusted the brothers with the task of creating all living things. Epimetheus was to distribute the gifts of the gods among the creatures. To some he gave flight, to others the ability to move through water or race through grass. He gave the beasts glittering scales, soft fur, and sharp claws. Meanwhile, Prometheus shaped the first humans out of mud. He formed them in the image of the gods, but Zeus decreed they were to remain mortal and worship the inhabitants of Mount Olympus from below. Zeus deemed humans subservient creatures, vulnerable to the elements and dependent on the gods for protection. However, Prometheus envisioned his crude creations with a greater purpose. So when Zeus asked him to decide how sacrifices would be made, the wily Prometheus planned a trick that would give humans some advantage. He killed a bull and divided it into two parts to present to Zeus. On one side, he concealed the succulent flesh and skin under the unappealing belly of the animal. On the other, he hid the bones under a thick layer of fat. When Zeus chose the seemingly best portion for himself, he was outraged at Prometheus's deception. Fuming, Zeus forbade the use of fire on Earth, whether to cook meat or for any other purpose. But Prometheus refused to see his creations denied this resource, and so he scaled Mount Olympus to steal fire from the workshop of Hephaestus and Athena. He hid the flames in a hollow fennel stalk and brought it safely down to the people. This gave them the power to harness nature for their own benefit and ultimately dominate the natural order. 
With fire, humans could care for themselves with food and warmth, but they could also forge weapons and wage war. Prometheus's flames acted as a catalyst for the rapid progression of civilization. When Zeus looked down at this scene, he realized what had happened. Prometheus had once again wounded his pride and subverted his authority. Furious, Zeus imposed a brutal punishment. Prometheus was to be chained to a cliff for eternity. Each day, he would be visited by a vulture who would tear out his liver, and each night his liver would grow back to be attacked again in the morning. Although Prometheus remained in perpetual agony, he never expressed regret at his act of rebellion. His resilience in the face of oppression made him a beloved figure in mythology. He was also celebrated for his mischievous and inquisitive spirit and for the knowledge, progress, and power he brought to human hands. He's also a recurring figure in art and literature. In Percy Bysshe Shelley's lyrical drama Prometheus Unbound, the author imagines Prometheus as a romantic hero who escapes and continues to spread empathy and knowledge. Of his protagonist, Shelley wrote, Prometheus is the type of the highest perfection of moral and intellectual nature, impelled by the purest and the truest motives to the best and noblest ends. His wife Mary envisaged Prometheus as a more cautionary figure and subtitled her novel Frankenstein, The Modern Prometheus. This suggests the damage of corrupting the natural order and remains relevant to the ethical questions surrounding science and technology today. As hero, rebel, or trickster, Prometheus remains a symbol of our capacity to capture the powers of nature. And ultimately, he reminds us of the potential of individual acts to ignite the world. So that does sound an awful lot like Victor Frankenstein, doesn't it? Prometheus dared to do something he thought was right, but had these disastrous personal consequences. He pushed the boundaries of what was acceptable, and then it all went wrong for himself. And once his actions were complete, they can't even be undone. Like, that's it. Now, that version, aside from, like, the clashing symbols and, like, eagles eating people's livers and stuff, is surprisingly charming compared to the version Mary Shelley would have known. So, as we've mentioned, she worked in the family's bookshop when she was young. And as far as I can tell, like, half the books were written by her dad, William Godwin. It's like if I started a bookshop on my house, and it was just like my books and then like one other book like Harry Potter or something but the version of Greek myths they would have sold was the one written by her dad that version fitting with Godwin's philosophy liberty individuality anarchy freedom has this theme of stand up to your leaders, stand up for what's right, sod the system. That's the version she would have known, the distinctly political one. So we could argue that Victor Frankenstein is essentially a message of where freedom can go wrong. He takes Godwin's line of being individual, being alone, being self-reliant, doing what he wants to do at the cost of everybody else. And yeah, it is disastrous, but it's still a stand that's been made. It's still a scientific moment. All right, thinking about people who stood up to the system, and I think this is actually quite brutal. 
One contender for being the model for old Victor is Percy Biss Shelley, Mary's boyfriend slash husband slash baby daddy slash editor slash gosh knows what else. So if I was going to write a book, if I was going to write some fiction and I would cast my boyfriend in the lead role, it would be in quite like a noble way. The lone software developer through his mighty intellect, bravery and keyboard skills created the good computer virus which solved everything. Like, you know, I paint him as heroic because I quite like him. And to paint your life partner as dodgy old Victor, it's a bit like, hmm, okay then. Right, the reason I'm saying this is first up, he's basically a mad scientist. When he was young, he was inspired by the lectures of this guy called Dr. Adam Walker, who he heard while he was still at Eton. For 10 years, he played around with Leyden jars, these primitive batteries, magnifying glasses, chemical mixtures. As a kid, he would burn holes in his clothes and carpets, tried to cure his sister's chillblains, like where your fingers hurt because it's too cold, by plugging her into a battery and then electrified a family tomcat. I do not have evidence about whether that cat survived, by the way. I assume... The cat stood up for himself and scratched Shelly, but, you know, he may well have fried the kitty. He started to think of electricity and the processes of chemical attraction and repulsion, of modes, of a single polarised force, this mystic nature of the romantics, where everything is linked together through the power of the unknowable, sublime, and all that tosh. So the guy is literally a mad scientist. Mary Shelley knew about this. Every year on his birthday, he would launch fire balloons. Now, this is also kind of a Chinese thing. Uh, it's where you get a paper balloon and you light a little candle inside it. And because hot air rises, it will then fly off. And they're incredibly beautiful. And it's a thing that you would do at the end of Chinese New Year. When I lived in China, I would float up my fire balloons. And what you're supposed to do is write your wish for the year on them. And they fly up to the King of Heaven and he grants it. It's pretty simple science it's quite a pretty demonstration but he'd been doing that every birthday with mary watching and probably explaining the science behind it like she is fully aware he is a mad scientist but it's not just this obsession with how things work it's the fact he's a massive egomaniac like i used to quite like shelley and then the more i've read about him i'm like he is an awful person in real life right percy shelley pursued Mary, in the same way the heroes in his poems pursue ghosts and, as Frankenstein pursues unknowable secrets, he courted the adolescent Mary Godwin at the grave of her mother, whose writing he admired. This already suggests that the daughter was for him a figure for the safely dead mother, a younger and less powerful creative version of her. Yet when he got this substitute, he began to tire of her, as he makes quite explicit in his poetry where he's not embarrassed to describe his life in terms of an interminable quest for an imaginary woman. Shelley was for herself never anything but embodied, like a very physical person, someone who equates their sense of self with their physical sensations. But for Percy Shelley, it seems to have been a grave disappointment to discover her substantiality and therefore her inadequacy for, for fulfilling his visionary requirements. 
Frankenstein is the story of what it feels like to be the undesired embodiment of romantic imaginative desire. The demon, rejected merely for being a body, suffers in something of the way that Shelley must have felt herself to suffer under the conflicting demands of romantic desire. On one hand, that she must embody the goal of Percy's quest, and on the other, his rejection of that embodiment. Now, my slightly eloquent quotations there are from Margaret Homans, Bearing Demons, Frankenstein's Circumvention of the Maternal. And I'm going to come back to this, like, replacement of motherhood. But can you imagine what that must have been like? Like, not being a genuine, a genuine woman, just like a woman. And the person you love is just like, oh, but you aren't as good as my idea of you. Oh, God. I mean, we already know that he was a bit of a dog when it came to her pregnancies and wouldn't be there for like the physical birth. But it makes perfect sense. It's really, it's really upsetting for her. Don't forget, she's only a teenager. It's also the fact that Victor Frankenstein is a proper narcissist, right? In the textbook definition of narcissism. Now, I always say, don't play armchair psychologist when you're analysing. But it's not me that says that. The very famous critic Joseph Kestner says, Frankenstein's longing for the other, then fleeing from the other, then the other's pursuit of Victor, all constitute signal instances of the corollary of the narcissist's reflections. Like, as much as Mary Shelley's novel concerns the modern Prometheus, it is much more involved with the modern Narcissus. Uh, the ancient Greek myth of Narcissus, as far as I recall from my sketchy knowledge, and the fact it's a Dali painter, is this guy is so obsessed with his own reflection that the girl who loves him, like, pines away and then she turns he turns into a flower or something something about daffodils but he is Frank Victor is a narcissist everything is the big I am the big I am the big I am he neglects his relationship with Elizabeth the monster doesn't meet his like idealized like person he's created and so it's like nope you're gone goodbye and just lives in this essential world of himself like okay let's let's tackle a really good one next like everyone says Frankenstein is the tale of someone who pushes science too far and it ends badly for him. And people talk about GMOs, like, you know, like your genetically modified corn or whatever, as Frankenstein food, as if it's something bad, something negative. And yeah, I would say Victor Frankenstein is the protagonist of this morality tale, but in a different way. Yeah, yeah, this is in Mary's lifetime, we've got the Industrial Revolution, which is propelling scientific research forward incredibly rapidly but it's not that he's doing that it's the way he's doing his scientific research Mella, in her feminist critique of science, said that recognising that Frankenstein's passion for his scientific research is a displacement of normal emotions and healthy human relationships. Obsessed by his vision of limitless power to be gained from his newly discovered capacity to bestow animation, Victor Frankenstein devotes all his time to his experimental research, the creating of a human being. He's the opposite of this 19th century trope of the man of feeling. Think back to all of those books that were on her reading list and how much they're about emotions, sentiment, and the kind of heroes of those books are great men who realise a certain sympathy for others and that's what propels their actions. Frankenstein has no sympathy for anybody 
and that's what makes him immoral. He also has the crime of taking power over nature. So it's not the fact he's doing science, it's the fact he's seeking to master and subvert natural forces. Someone who, let's say, is like, you know, working on combustion and they're like, burn coal. Yeah, that's cool, like you're working with nature, there's a natural resort, you're working with it. But Victor is trying to take away the concept of motherhood. He creates what we, what we could say is a child with no females in there at all. Nothing that's like anything involving natural birth. Back to Homans, bearing demons. Many readers of Frankenstein have noted both the demon's creation amounts to an elaborate circumvention of normal heterosexual procreation. Frankenstein does by himself with great difficulty what a heterosexual couple can do quite easily. And that each actual mother dies very rapidly upon being introduced as a character in the novel. Frankenstein's own history is full of the deaths of mothers. His mother was discovered as a poverty-stricken orphan by Frankenstein's father. We're not really going to get into that how gross that is, by the way. His fiancée, Elizabeth, was likewise discovered as an orphan in poverty by Frankenstein's parents. Again, kind of gross. Elizabeth catches scarlet fever and her adoptive mother, nursing her, catches it herself and dies of it. Like Shelley herself, Elizabeth is the death of her mother and becomes a substitute for her. Justine, a young girl taken in by the Frankenstein family as a beloved servant, is said to cause the death of her mother and Justine, acting as a foster mother to Frankenstein's little brother, is executed for his murder. There are mothers in the Frankenstein circle and all of them die. But to bring a composite corpse to life is to circumvent the normal channels of procreation. The demon's birth violates the normal relations of family, especially the normal sexual relation of husband and wife. Victor has gone to great lengths to produce a child without Elizabeth's assistance and in the dream's language, to circumvent her, to make her unnecessary, is to kill her and to kill all mothers altogether. Frankenstein's creation, then, depends on and perpetuates the death of the mother and of motherhood. And this is good points, actually. Like, if he wanted to have a child so bad, couldn't he have had a chat to Elizabeth and been like, shall we do this? Let's think about, like, in Mary Shelley's relation to mothers herself. She has this weird veneration for her own mother, who died at birth. And from what I can tell, in the God twin blended household there seems to have been this like weird cult of mary wollstonecraft where they were all like what would wollstonecraft do now and it becomes this weird like obsession for you can ask them argue that the fact they got together at her mother's grave like she's asking for her mum's blessing but she's lost children in childbirth and through miscarriage. Death and motherhood are something that's always linked in her mind. Birth is the beginning of a life, but it can also mean the end of a life. Motherhood is not something happy, and motherhood is something that's destroyed and linked with death throughout this book. That's one of... Frankenstein's crimes. It's not the science he's doing, it's the fact he's trying to destroy through creation. Creepy, in it. So, and we'll come back to this next time because we can argue this is also like a class representation. He could be the irresponsible middle class who use science without thinking of the consequences. He doesn't care about his monster. He doesn't give him love and support, much in the way a horrible factory owner would 
ditch their their workers. I'm working on the next series, by the way, which is going to be an Inspector Calls, and I've just been writing all about Burling ditching Eva, you know? He doesn't even give the creature a name. He's just like, creature! Kind of like Factory Owner would be like, you, there, worker man, what are you doing? without even getting to know the person. But there is some hope in there because he is only one man. He is weak compared to his own creation. The working class are larger and more powerful than him, much as the monster. So is one of Frankenstein's crimes behaving in the same manner as an unethical fractal factory owner just to uh smack this down a little bit more just to smack down the point of frankenstein he ain't a good guy we've got captain walter he is the narrator of the frame story he considers going forward into the arctic on his scientific expedition into a storm in a fairly uncaring way like frankenstein does like it's a storm it's fine his friends and crew make him reconsider and go back they work collaboratively in the same way that these enlightenment philosophs dreamt of this like intellectual pan-european community and he survives and he thrives part of what victor goes wrong is working on science individually Visually. He should be collaborating with others. He should be talking to his professors. He should be getting stuff peer reviewed. I mean, who is going to pass this kind of nonsense sort of article? But he doesn't. He decides to go it alone and neglect others. Walton, on the other hand, works with others, just like the lovely Erasmus Darwin. He is Mary's go-to example in her mind of a good scientist. He lets things grow slowly. He studies it, but doesn't interfere. He looks at all his little plants and he's like, mm, lovely plants. Doesn't try and take over for them. Victor's badness, Victor's immorality is by trying to be too individual. We could also argue at this point, is Victor her dad? <laughs> Oh god, could this get any more like Electra complexy, right? Her dad is obsessed with being individual. All a man needs in this world is himself. He's this proto-anarchist. And that's where it all goes wrong. Her and her dad, Godwin, were estranged at this point. But he, she tried to get into his good books by dedicating the book Frankenstein to him. There's more evidence of this. Frankenstein is a frankly terrible father and frankly terrible parent and rejects his child, much as Mary may have felt rejected when he remarried the stepmother. He would have been her creator physically, biologically and intellectually, of course, because of this dinner table talks, intellectual atmosphere of whatever. But he's also very distant. He rejects her. In Mary's mind, he leaves her with the evil stepmother, who, again, I've got a lot of sympathy for. She sounds quite nice. And we can see this whole book as an allegory of our response to children and this is again where it fits into a morality tale it's not that he's doing science it's that he's not responsible for the consequences of it think about all these industrial disasters right oil spill in the gulf or whatever and the company doesn't take responsibility for it that kind of vibe of how could you do that it was your oil or like how could that be okay it's the same vibe that we're supposed to get from this. The baby and creature is alienated as society recoils from him. 
It's the rejection that creates his murderous revenge. It's an allegory, as I said, of our responsibility to children or outsiders, or anyone who doesn't conform to our conventional ideas. Maybe we should adopt a person who seems a bit different, has gone their own way. Maybe, hint hint William Godwin, you should be kind and caring towards the daughter who's eloped with the sketchy poet and gone her own way. Yeah, the book is dedicated to him, so we can see that as like a make nice nicey nicey gesture look daddy i've dedicated my book to you but you can't really avoid thinking of it as maybe being her dad combined with her disappointing boyfriend as being a warning for the negative scientist of isolating yourself of being the opposite of this man of feeling is going to end in disaster of working with others taking it slowly respecting nature you're gonna have good results. So yeah, there is morality in there, but it's not as simple as he does science, he's bad. We also wanna think he's not a good character. Much as, you know, the the classic victim or villain is Victor. The victim or villain is the monster, the victim or villain. It's similar to the one that always comes up with Merchant of Venice is Shylock, victim or villain. No, he's not a victim. He's literally just a villain. He is the villain. Lol. Full stop. That's it. There you go. If you're just basing it on the context. I mean, someone on Twitter asked me what the point of this whole project was because like, if you're an English teacher, the language is supposed to speak for itself. And yeah, yeah, of course, of course, your interpretation is perfect perfect like because it's coming from you it's your reaction but context says context says that context hammer that has he's his villain written on it is stomping down and i'm going to expand on this next week maybe you haven't had enough maybe you've had too much that's all right next episode i'm going to be talking about the monster and how the monster is sympathetic and how the monster is the victim in this and also why the monster's awesome i'm sorry by the way that i missed a week i have a recurring injury with my foot um i was running for a bus when i was 20 and i absolutely wrecked my right foot it was icy right i didn't want to be late for work and now 12 years on my foot randomly collapses and i was going to the toilet and then my foot collapsed it was a public toilet and i absolutely face planted in the street so last week when i have my production days i just just lying there with a hot water bottle on myself uh, like full of codeine just like why why is my fate why have i been brought to this was it an excess of hubris so i was not really in a position to record apologies for that i'm hoping my schedule will get back on track and i'll come to you with El Monstero, the creature, next week. Thank you so much for listening. Straighttalkingenglish.co.uk forward slash support the project. Drop me a donation if you like what I do. Forward slash books. You can buy the book that goes along with this series. It's called Frankenstein the Full Context. It is very good, in my opinion. I would rate it excellent. And some other people might do as well, if you're lucky. All right, thank you very much, guys. Hope you enjoy listening, and I will speak to you very, very soon. Thank you.